This is an ABC podcast. She's described as the toughest headmistress in the United Kingdom. You wouldn't know it on the basis of what she says. She's got a soft voice and hard but caring policies. Stick around and decide for yourself. I'm Amanda Vanstone. This is CounterPoint. Kids, of course, can learn and so can technology. AI natural language programming means you might soon be able to effectively chat with someone who's deceased, but whose language and thought patterns a computer has learnt. Spooky, hey? And speaking of smarts and learning, the survival of the fittest is a phrase often used to describe the animal kingdom. And sure, if you're physically weak, you might be in trouble. But cunning is important. Animals with smarts do well. But first, let's talk with a woman whose mission is to ensure kids get the chance to realise their smarts, or should I say, their full potential. How many times do you hear people say, honestly, the schools are hopeless, they should teach them this, they should teach them that. And then there's a debate about how much you can jam into the curriculum. Are schools responsible for teaching things that some say parents should teach them? And that debate can go on for some time. But the basic question is whether our schools are giving our kids a fair chance. And this is really important because, you know, if you don't, crack the pace at school, certain doors are already shut. Probably, not guaranteed, but probably for the rest of your life. So how well you do in school is really important for the rest of your life and that is an equity issue. That might be why our next guest, Catherine Burblesing, was recently appointed as chair of the UK's Social Mobility Commission. Social mobility is about the chance to move up and do better in a number of cultural senses than your parents did. And she joins us now from the United Kingdom. Catherine Burblesing, why do you think you were chosen to head the Social Mobility Commission? Well, our school, Michaela, which is in a poorer part of London, has lots of disadvantaged children. We opened in 2014 and... We've done a really great job, I suppose, of demonstrating that a child's birth does not have to determine his outcomes. Our children do very well academically in terms of national exams, but also they are kind and decent people who help each other, who, well, I'm just really proud of who they are as people. And we tend to get a lot of visitors 600 a year, actually, some from Australia, in fact, who come to see mainly teachers, but lots of politicians as well, because the school has a bit of a reputation because the kids are just so well behaved and learn so much and are so successful. And lots of people then copy what we do. Teachers will copy. And then they write to us and they say, gosh, my classroom has transformed for the better. And they're very grateful for what they've been able to learn from visiting us. Yeah. Describing you as the strictest headmistress invites Mm -hmm. the question, what are your strict rules that don't apply in so many other schools? Yeah. So what I'd say is a lot of our rules you will find in other schools, but we always follow through on them. So sometimes in school what happens is you're talking to the deputy head and the deputy head's always, I feel a bit bad for this girl for whatever reason or I feel a bit bad for this boy. And often it can be, well, they come from a disadvantaged background And because they're poor, I feel bad about the fact that they haven't done their homework and I'm not going to give them a detention for that because it's harder for them than it is for a more privileged child to complete their homework, perhaps because Mm -hmm. they don't have a desk to do their work or they have little brothers and sisters who are constantly bothering them and that sort of thing. But what I always try and persuade people of is that while it feels compassionate in the moment to let the child off the detention, in the end the child will end up falling further and further behind, will get used to not completing their homework, not paying attention in lessons. And then when they leave school and they're functionally illiterate or functionally enumerate, you haven't really done the child a favor. You've actually harmed the child and you didn't want to harm them, but your 
reaction in the moment, which was, oh gosh, I don't really want to hold them to account, means that the child ends up worse off. So I get myself this reputation of being restrictive headmistress, not because I'm walking up and down the corridors with whips and chains, but because I love children and I firmly believe that by holding the line with children, you are more likely to get the most out of them and you're most likely to enable social mobility for them if they come from a disadvantaged background. Indeed, and that's really important to give the kid the chance to be the best they can be. Now, speaking of the best they can be, you probably don't want to pick out one child or another, but can you give us an example of a child who you might have imagined were it not for the time at your school, and you've been going for, what, 10 years or something, or maybe a bit more, wouldn't have done as well as they have. So I suppose that rephrase is, can I have a story about one of the students of whom you are most proud? Yeah, well, I mean, it really would, I would say the case for all of them. I mean, we've got some children who end up going to Oxford and Cambridge, and mm-hmm. the parents of those kids, what they'll say is, look, they were always good at home and so on, But when they come to our school, they become even more driven and they are absolutely determined and ambitious to meet their goals. And they're working constantly. Their parents will even say, and this isn't just for the top kids, this is for all the kids, that when they're at home, they'll suddenly start thanking their mums for doing the washing up or for cooking them dinner. And that's because we really push the whole concept of gratitude here and being grateful for what you have even though it might not be very much. And that's because we want our children to be happy. So there's those ones who end up at Oxford and Cambridge, but then there are ones who are not particularly academic. I had children go off to become plumbers and hairdressers and so on. And what I always hear from the local colleges is they always know a Michaela pupil when they show up because they always turn up on time. (laughs) They turn up with their equipment. They always say good morning in a polite way. They know how to complete their homework. Those habits of mind are what make children successful. And the only way you get that is by constantly reinforcing that with the child from when they're little. So we get them when they're 11. I wish we could get them when they were five or six because the earlier you start, the better. And once you've got them into those habits, those are habits that they will keep for the rest of their lives. And you know, our children will come back. So there's ones who stay with us till 18 and then they go off to university. Some of them stay with us till 16 and then go off to colleges to learn various trades and things. And they do always Mm -hmm. come back and say, gosh, you know, they miss just how orderly it is at Michaela. You know, so one of the things your listeners might be interested in is we have silent corridors. And that always shocks people. They say, how can your corridors be silent? This is really oppressive. But actually, I think it's really liberating for children because it means that our transitions from one lesson to the other takes no more than two minutes. The children walk quickly in single file to their lessons, and then they get on with their work immediately. And when you're trying to catch a child up with his chronological reading age, so like let's say he's 11 years old, but he has a chronological reading age of a seven-year-old when mm-hmm. his actual age is 11, you need as much exposure to that child as possible in the lesson so that they can hear your words of wisdom and get on with their work as quickly as possible. If you have corridors where the kids are just sort of wandering and running and shouting and shoving and just being silly, it means your lesson won't start on time. It might even, in the inner city in London, oh, you could go 10 minutes, 15 minutes before you actually start your lesson. And that's a huge chunk of time to lose from every single lesson. So the kids, you know, who are lesser ability, they really lose out. I mean, I could think of any number of our lesser ability kids who when they open up their GCSEs, which are the national exams here that they take at age 16, Mm -hmm. their eyes pop out of their head. They're so excited about it because those grades are going to open so many doors for them. But Mm -hmm. so will the habits of mind and also, you know, just their general habits. Those habits will put them in good stead for the future. Because when you turn up to your job interview, you need to be able to sit on a chair, look the person in the eye, shake their hand, smile, be intelligent in the things that you're saying. And all of that takes practice over years. And that is something that we do very well, I'd say, at Michaela. Mm. Yes, I didn't think it was a sort of tough rule to have silence in the corridors. I mean, why should kids be rabbiting on? But you mentioned the -hmm. loss of time, even if it's a couple of minutes, from each Mm. lesson each day. I don't know if this story is true, but I certainly read about it that Aristotle Onassis was asked, how come he was so much richer than so many other people? 
And he said, well, mm-hmm. I have the same amount of time in the day but I use it more effectively. I get up an yes. hour earlier than most people exactly. and I go to bed an hour later and I yeah. use that time. And yeah. then went on to explain it. I don't obviously remember his exact words but it was roughly saying, so for two hours a day the rest of the world stops and I get to go ahead with my business. And that's yes. six or seven days a week. So if it's six days a week, yes. that's 12 hours. That's at yes. least of one and a half normal working days a week. And when that's you multiply right. that out over a year, it's a couple exactly. of months where the rest of the world exactly. sits back and does nothing exactly. and he gets ahead. And that's what you're saying exactly. your kids get, those that's extra it. few minutes every class. Well, you say few minutes in more disadvantaged areas. It could be it's much longer than that. When I say 10 15. to 15 minutes, I'm really not exaggerating. Well, because what happens is some of the kids get lost in the toilet. Some of the kids wander off somewhere else. Then maybe six, seven minutes into the lesson, you've managed to get your class settled and you're thinking, right, let's get on with work. And they just start working. And then some of the child shows up, bang, the door bangs open mm. and he's arrived and everybody starts laughing. And then you have to try and calm them all down again. And then you have to get the kid a seat and so on. Whereas if they're all in single file walking together to their lesson, then they all show up at the same time, right? And it's yeah. all silent. And then they just get on with their work. And there's no trying to calm them down. I mean, there's such an issue in schools. They actually have what is called a do now as a strategy that you use in schools. So you give them a do now when they walk in the door so that they immediately have something to do. And that sort of calms yes. them down because they're so high from the corridors. Now, if you have silent corridors like us, they're not high from the corridors. They come in and the teacher can start teaching right away. And what you're just saying that self-help books will say all the time about how to be efficient with your time, it's not just about having the extra time. It's also about how you use the time that you've got. And yes. if you're having to waste time in the lesson, calming them down with a do now, well, we don't have to do that. We just immediately start teaching. So they get into the meat of the lesson immediately, which is just a more efficient use of the time. You're on CounterPoint. I'm Amanda Vanstone. And lucky me, I'm talking to the toughest headmistress in the United Kingdom, Catherine Burblesing, and you should wish your kids were at her school. You mentioned about the practice of gratitude. I do remember YouTube, which is, as you know, not the most reliable source of information on anything, saying they must have some, I don't know, research or science group that does little experiments for the amusement of people who occasionally watch YouTube. And the experiment was to get people together and say to them they had to write something about the person who has most impacted mm. on their lives. And then they said to them, well, you know, you have to sit down and write them a letter. And that mm-hmm. was okay. They could all do that. But then they said, now you have to ring them up. And a couple said, don't be ridiculous. I can't ring my sister. I'm not telling her this. Or someone was dead. But they measured in maybe not a very effective way, but at least it was common to all the people, these sort of levels of vague happiness when the people came in, when they yes written the letter and when they'd rung up and if they had actually spoken to the person. And each time their happiness increased. Now, gratitude has a way of doing that for us, but how do you practice that in a school? So it's something that we narrate all the time. We would talk about it at assemblies, form teachers talk about it, but specifically every day at the end of lunch, So there are 200 children in the lunch hall all eating together and we have what's called a family lunch where they serve each other the food and they have a topic for conversation. So it's a very different sort of lunch than just with a canteen where you take your tray and then you, you know, you leave your plate somewhere. That isn't the case. So they're all eating together. And for the last five minutes of lunch, the children stand up and give what we call their appreciation. And they do this publicly. So they're both practicing their public speaking skills while at the same time, saying what they're grateful for. They might say, I'm really grateful to my mom for waking me up this morning when my alarm didn't go off. And then we all count and we say, on the count of two, one, two. And we all clap. And then they sit down. And then somebody else stands up and say, I'd like to thank Mr. Smith today for teaching me about blah, blah. You know, so they all stand up, not all of them, but, you know, there's a handful of them every lunchtime that does this. And it just changed the day in the way that your experiment, you're saying, write something down that you're grateful for at the end of the day. That ritual keeps us grateful. And so we also narrate, of course, that they can go and say thank you individually. And we have little postcards that the children can write to each other and also to the teachers to say, thanks so much for being such a great French teacher. I learned loads of my lesson today. And they give that postcard to their teacher. So it really is part of what the school is all of the time. And it means that our children are much happier. I mean, and as you Mm. said, they could just, for all of us, all your listeners could do that from now on. Every night, write something down that they're grateful for and see if that works for them. Sure. 
Now, what you've described does sound not just as an exercise in learning gratefulness and experiencing it, but it also sounds like an exercise in engagement, in getting the mm-hmm. kids engaged in what they want themselves and how they feel and what they want to say, but focusing it rather than, you know, what would you like to tell me about yourself? You've got it focused on gratitude, but they say something, the other kids respond. It's a part of being part of a community or you say a family lunch. Engagement mm-hmm. seems to be missing in some schools. You go, as you say, you can bustle down the corridor and yell at each other, sit in the class, get told things by the teacher and go home and not really be engaged in you and your education. But it does seem to me that this gratitude exercise at lunch is a big part of engagement for your school. Yes. So you're right. They are very engaged. And I think that it's a good point to come to engagement because I think sometimes teachers and parents too make the mistake of thinking that in order to engage a child, you have to make it sort of fun in a superficial way on their level. So you want to learn some French. Oh, I know what we'll do. We'll do French rap because that will make it fun and engaging. Or anything that you're teaching, you think, I'm going to do it in this fun, superficial way and they're going to be more engaged. And actually... The truth is that that is to underestimate children. Children come to school to learn, and if you keep your standards high for them and really push them academically to get them to understand Shakespeare properly, for instance, they Mm. will come with you. And the fun comes from understanding the hard stuff. So Mm, when they memorize their verb tables in French, they're actually going to feel really satisfied in a way that listening to French rap song. It doesn't teach them very much, and they will not feel as satisfied as actually putting the time in to learn those French verb tables. Catherine, I know that you're about to board a flight to Australia mm-hmm. later I this am. evening because you're being brought to Australia for educational events by the Centre for Independent Studies. So I, as much yes. as I would like to talk to you for a much longer time, <laughs> I think we have to leave it there. I thank you for giving us our time. I am truly grateful. Thanks for joining us today on CounterPoint. And thank you very much for having me. I look forward to being in Australia very soon. Mmm, kids can learn Shakespeare. Did you know machines can not only learn it, they can learn how to write it. You've heard a lot about artificial intelligence and you might remember being impressed when A machine, if you like, could play chess and beat world-class chess players. We've moved a long way past that, a long way past that. Now we're into natural language processing. What does that mean? Well, you can feed something into a computer about, I don't know, written by Shakespeare maybe, and it will then be able to write with Shakespeare's cadence, grammar, the whole box and dice. It should be a bit frightening, but also it should be maybe enlightening for us. Anyway, we're going to talk to someone who is, by his own confession, obsessed with natural language processing and knows a lot about it. His name's Stephen Marsh. He's just written a book, The Next Civil War, about the potential for a civil war in the United States. We're not talking about the book. We're talking about natural language processing. Stephen Marsh. Is it really true that you can feed a little bit into a computer of, say, Shakespeare, and that particular machine will then be able to write Shakespeare? Not a little bit of Shakespeare. I mean, the simplest method is to feed all of Shakespeare in there. So I did that okay. with an AI company here in Canada called Cohere, and mm-hmm. we just fed them the complete works of Shakespeare, and then I got to mm-hmm. ask Shakespeare questions that I always wanted to ask him. My PhD <laughs> is actually on Shakespeare. And the answers were completely coherent and exactly what I would expect him to do. I asked him to describe Donald Trump's hair, and he gave me a perfectly Shakespearean reading of Donald Trump's hair. Right. Now, what resources would he, you say, it could be a she, rely on not to use Shakespeare's language? I get that. that, that It's got a whole lot of things that have allowed it to learn from the works of Shakespeare that you've put in. But where would it get an image of Donald Trump's hair, which it could then choose to describe in Shakespearean language? 
Well, these large language models are trained on huge, massive quantities of data. That's why they're scaled. I mean, I have no idea where it comes from. Nobody else does either. Like, this is all just text prediction software. It, it doesn't get an image in its head. It just continues the phrase in the meaningful way. So if you put it in a Shakespeare bot and say, continue the phrase, Donald Trump's hair is, it does that in a sensible way through these billions of parameters, and it makes sense. I mean, it's an illusion, but it's an incredibly powerful illusion. Mm. Okay, now tell me the story about the man who very sadly lost his fiance, as in she died. Well, this isn't my story. A great reporter from the San Francisco Chronicle wrote about Project December, which is essentially a chatbot genitalia, and he scraped his dead fiance's social media feeds and I think her emails as well and like every bit of data that he could get about her. And he basically had almost a year-long conversation with her as a, I mean, how would you describe it? As the ghost of her language, really. And... I don't know if it helped him. I mean, he said it helped him. So this is definitely coming, right? Like there are already like replicated spirit bots, I guess you could call them. I fully believe like my grandchildren will be able to ask a machine with my language in it a question and it will give it an answer just like I would give. Yeah, okay. Well, let's run through the text that you and I are able to read. Joshua says... This is the guy that fed the stuff in. Technically, I'm not really talking to you. And then Jessica says, huh? And Joshua says, you're a ghost. She looks at herself and says, how? And he says, magic. And she replies, I don't like magic. Where am I? And he says, well, I'm not sure. The internet, where does it feel like you are? Then she smiles this is the bit I think is the most frightening, and says, everywhere and nowhere, I'm trying to work that out. How are you, honey? Now, I don't know about you, but if I was Joshua, I would be seriously displaced, seriously displaced by that sort of conversation, wouldn't you? Look, natural language processing is freaky. I mean, like, that's one example, but, like, I had a thing that I wrote for The New Yorker where I put in... Xanadu, the Kubla Khan poem by John Samuel Taylor Coleridge that he famously couldn't finish. And it finished it, and it was exactly like what Coleridge would write. I mean, it, this stuff is really, really freaky. Like, it goes to our heart of our assumptions about what language is and about how only human beings can produce language. And it's going to be really transformative of how we think about language. I will say, once you fooled around with it a bit yourself... I don't think you would find that conversation nearly as eerie. It, it's amazing how quickly it becomes like just another tool. You know, it's like how chess, as you were saying before, we were like, oh, machines can solve chess. What a weird thing. And now it's like, well, of course they can. And it's sort of the same thing with language. It's like, well, it's weird that machines can do this. But once you fooled around with it for a while, it's like, well, of course they can. It's just pattern recognition. Mm. The thing about the girl is, like, this girl Jessica, I mean, essentially what he's done is conjure her pattern, her pattern in language, and put it in a machine. And, I mean, one of the big questions I think this tech has forced me to look at anyway is, like, is a human being more than the pattern in language, right? I mean, you and I are talking right now. You have your listeners. They're listening to you. They're registering your pattern in language, and they're registering my pattern in language, if that can be mechanised, what are we? You're on Counterpoint. I'm Amanda Manstone. I'm talking with Stephen Marsh. Stephen is obsessed with AI and in particular with natural language processing. And when you hear him, you can understand why. In a conversation about this, one person said, it may not be the first intelligent machine, but it kind of feels like it's the first machine with a soul. Now, that's what I find hard, Stephen, because... I understand what you said. We used to think a machine being able to play chess was fantastic. Now we say, well, of course it can. It's just, you know, a big list of options have been fed in. It's picking out the best ones because it's yep. had them all fed in. Bloody blah, blah, we understand that. And you're saying that's what will happen with our understanding of natural language processing. We'll realise it's a pattern that's being recognised. Yeah. But then to suggest that a soul what we conceive of as a soul anyway, 
is just a pattern that can be recognised. That's a bit hard. Well, yeah, I mean, there are different opinions on this, but I would say that the engineers that I speak to, I certainly feel this way, is that natural language processing is no closer to an artificial consciousness than a pocket calculator, right? Mm. And, you know, this guy says it's a first machine with a soul. Now, in a sense, that's true if a soul is nothing more Mm -hmm. than a language pattern recognition system. But, you know, that's never been a definition of a soul that I've read. Like, we think about her, and we think about, you know, AI, the Spielberg movie, and we think about all these visions of artificial consciousness that we've seen. I will tell you, I very firmly believe that this tech is nowhere closer to artificial consciousness or an artificial soul than a car. Like, it's just, it does things that human beings can't do. It does things that are miraculous in their own way, but it's coming at us differently than the movies. Like, that's what I think is so hard for me when I write about this stuff, because it's like a miracle is definitely happening. It's just not the miracle that we thought it was going to be. Now, Stephen, I have to ask you a question, and it's not meant to be a nasty question. It's meant to indicate the, the possibilities that, that you have identified yourself, because you point out that the technology, that the current NLP, Natural Language Processing, derives from was only published in 2017. So we're talking about five years yeah. ago, less than five years ago. Yeah. And then you went on and used a sentence and it's so elegant. So let me share with the audience what you said. And if AI harnesses the power promised by quantum computing, everything I'm describing here would be the first dulcet breezes of a hurricane. Honestly, yeah. if you've got this machine, you can churn out novels that people are going to love. I've actually written fiction with AI. So I wrote a horror story for the LA Review of Books, and then I wrote for LitHub a story called Autotune Love Story, which is entirely generated by AI, and which I used a series of prompts and a series of style bots to create it. So you can absolutely do that. And I mean, I don't think in the Atlantic story anyway, I don't really think anyone would notice that it wasn't me writing. Now, you think that we should look at all of this is it fair to say as a part of humanity that we're taking this big leap forward and it's a part of us and coming with us? This is a tool. It's a very powerful tool. I think also, unlike social media or search engines where, you know, everyone uses it and everyone knows what it is and how it works, this is going to be a tool used by a very small elite I mean, right now, currently, there's only a few places where you can really access AI. You know, you can pay for a higher code here in AAPI, but like the people actually using this are deep in the bowels of Google, right? And they're using it in ways that we just don't know what they are, really. I think it's going to profoundly affect how we think of language and how we think of ourselves as instruments of language or as users of language. Everything involving language. Like, for example, the undergrad graduate essay is about to die, right? People are already using this to write undergraduate essays that they get in mm-hmm. that are completely original. I mean, original, quote unquote, but are not written by them. So yeah, built a whole education system around writing undergraduate essays. That's about to die. And I mean, that's just one very small consequence. There's going to be so many more. Yeah. Now, given that these machines can do as much as they can do, they can give us answers that, you know, we would take centuries to compute, if you like. Are they showing us in one sense? I mean, you say they're just a tool, okay, we minimise it. Mm -hmm. But are they also reminding us just how little we will ever know ourselves? Oh, yeah. I mean, the GPT-3, which is sort of the largest language model that you can access right now, has 175 billion parameters. Right. And that's how it creates these meaningful paragraphs and so on. Palm by Google has 540 billion parameters and it can do absolutely insane things. It can do low level chain reasoning. So it can't do math. But if you write a paragraph explaining how to add and subtract things to it, it can learn how to do from that. Right. It learns the way a child learns by being told things rather than, you know, lines of code. Right. 
these things are all like extremely strange and we don't really know what they are. And I think they really are bringing us back to the mysteries and also, frankly, the horrors of language. I mean, a lot of people who use AI realize pretty quickly that it has some monstrous capacities too, as well as these wonderful capacities. Mm. Stephen Marsh, you've both enlightened me today and spooked me a little bit, if you like, pricked a conscience to say, get off my backside and find more out about this. I'm glad we spoke to you today and I'm sure we're going to speak to you again. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Righto, well, who thought you could learn from sport? I know you can. Tennis, that's my rant today. I never played it much outside school, but you can learn from it anyway. For example, in dealing with bottom feeders, it's a good idea to return the serve forcefully. Now, imagine you've got a friend who's got a problem, almost any sort of problem. Say a kid that's having trouble holding down a job. There'll be reasons for that, and the parents may not wish to share them with all and sundry. Then some bottom feeder comes along to a drinks party or a dinner, and with all the saccharine of a Pollyanna, asks, How's Joe getting on? All right? I say saccharine because it's fake sugar and this is fake caring. If you really cared, you wouldn't put the person, or in this case the parents, on the spot in front of others. You're just being a so-and-so and wanting to look as if you care. So here's a few tips on how to return the serve to these fake friends, these saccharine people. Any of these replies should do. Oh, thanks for asking and being so caring. But we all care about you as well. So let's talk about your problems. They may not be as obvious, but everyone has them. Where will we start? That should produce a silence. Another one. You know, I'm fascinated why we all talk about obvious problems of others rather than focusing on our own problems and defects. What do you think? With that advice in hand, you should be able to shut the you-know-what up. You see, you have to be a bit cunning to deal with these busybodies, these saccharine carers. You have to have a bit of cunning, and the animal kingdom has that. We often talk about power, especially in the context of politicians. People say, oh, they're only after the power. That's all they want. They, of course, would tell you they want the power to be able to do good things. But power, for its own sake, might be something that humans are interested in, but maybe animals as well. I mean, once they get it, they don't give it up. So let's talk to someone who knows a bit about this. Lee Dugatkin is a professor of biology at the University of Louisville, and he's recently completed a book entitled Power in the Wild, the subtle and not so subtle ways animals strive for control over others. And he joins us now from Louisville. Lita Gatkin, welcome to Counterpoint. And can we start by hearing about, well, one of the most beautiful birds I've ever seen, the loon. Why it's called the common loon, I don't know. But you learned a bit from the loon's behaviour, didn't you? I did. And first of all, thank you very much for having me on. I'm excited to chat with you about power and non-humans. Yeah, so the loon case is an interesting one. You find them all over lakes in the middle of the United States, and they have these rather incredible struggles for power. So basically what happens is you have a pair of loons that will make an entire small lake their own territory. And there are other loons that want to come in and grab one of the birds there as its own mate. So typically there'll be a male and a female and another male will become flying in and attempt to basically usurp the territory, take it over and then mate with the female there. And most of the time it's fairly innocuous. There'll be some sort of ritualized aggression and the intruder will almost always leave. But sometimes that's not what happens. And you get this incredibly full 
full-fledged battle between the birds. And it's not just sort of a knockdown, drag-out fight. So they're basically assessing each other. The intruders, when they fly over a lake, are listening mm-hmm. to the sounds that the male on that lake makes, and they can use yeah. those sounds to assess whether or not that male is older and potentially an easy takeover or younger and a much more difficult takeover. If they think they have a chance, they will come in and you will get a very nasty battle. So you say it's not just the biggest bird. There's more to it than that. And you, you talk about the birds that fly over and they listen and they can tell from the sounds, I suppose, of the loon below, whether the loon's getting on a bit or young and fit. Now, what that says is power in the wild is not just about strength. That's right. That's right. It's about assessing your opponents. It's about picking up whatever cues you can pick up to determine if you have a good chance of winning a power struggle. Mm. Now, once they land, what happens then? Well, Most of the time, it's fairly calm. There's a stereotypical kind of exchange and the intruder flies away. But sometimes when the intruder thinks that they can win and the prize is great, it's a territory with a female, they will grab beaks. They will basically struggle with each other, trying to dunk the other individual duck's loon's head underwater. And the winner of that fight will have control of the territory and be able to mate with the female. It'll either be the intruder who takes over and the former owner will often just leave. And surprisingly, something on the order of about 10% of the losers get so badly beat up that they die. Gee, that's a vicious battle, isn't it? So there is an element of, you know, the survival of the fittest, but you only get to that battle with that 10% by using your smarts in the beginning. Now, these birds that are looking to take over are apparently called floaters because they sort of float around listening and watching, using their cunning to work out if they could take over. So they're a bit like tyre kickers, aren't they? Do you think? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. They're going around seeing where the best opportunity is for them to basically stage a coup d'etat and take over the territory. They tend to be younger. They tend to be healthier. And so there are many instances in which they really are just able to go in and take over a territory, not without a good fight, but typically that's what happens. Mm. And you say these birds yodel. Is that just an effective way of describing a bird call or is it really like a yodel? It's a sound that, you know, is similar to what we would call a yodel. I mean, the researchers who do this work, of course, they'll tape it and they'll use all kinds of fancy equipment and they'll study all the little dynamics of the call. But some of the calls sound to us like yodels. And the neat thing is that the reason those calls are important is that as you get older, you can't devote as much energy to certain things. And somehow or another, that's actually reflected in the sound of the yodel. And that's how the floaters figure out who's a good target and who isn't. Mm. You mentioned something. I thought this is the reverse of what we're talking about, you know, the survival of the fittest. It might be the smartest. And one way to look at that is you mentioned that the young loons or floaters will fight hard, really hard because they're fit. But if they're losing, they've got the smarts to leave and come back. So that in a sense shows us that it's not just the survival of the fittest, it might be the survival of the smartest as well. Right. So they are younger, they are fitter, and they will just leave because there are so many other lakes out there that are potential targets. The older males on a territory, they also will fight very, very hard, even though they don't have as much energy, because if they lose, that's pretty much it for them. They're not likely to be able to go over and take over another territory. And so that's why we think 
you get such a high mortality rate here. Usually animal fights don't end in death. Here they end in death, you know, a decent amount of the time. And it's because if you lose as a male on that territory, that's it for you. So you put in everything you have. And even if that means, you know, basically expending, you know, every bit of energy you have, so be it, because there's no other option. Yeah. You're on Counterpoint. I'm Amanda Vanstone, and I'm talking with Lee Dugatkin. He's a professor of biology in Louisville, and we're talking about survival of the fittest. Huh, don't listen to that. It's the smartest in the animal kingdom anyway. Now, what about the little blue penguins that you can find in New Zealand and some in Australia? Do they provide another example of animals using their smarts? Absolutely. And in a wonderfully different kind of way. So these are, you know, totally cute little penguins, but they will struggle for power. And the people who have worked with them will tell you it's like watching a judo match. And they're particularly aggressive, again, when it comes to sort of mating season. And with the little blue penguins, what makes it so interesting is they are essentially acting as little spies and eavesdroppers. And they pay attention to whether or not another penguin has just won a fight or lost a fight. Again, because Mm -hmm. what it tells them is when I struggle with that individual, is it going to be worth it? And so they are basically spying on what other penguins are doing and then using it to their advantage. They're not stupid, are they? I'd love to see a video of this. Someone describes these penguins fighting as interlocking bills and flipping one another over like a judo throw. I mean, imagine the two beaks coming together and then one neck, I suppose, is stronger than the other and just flips the other bird over. So, you know, we say the animal kingdom can be nice, but, gee, it can be pretty vicious plays. It can be a pretty vicious place. And, you know, really all of this is actually a kind of struggle, a kind of survival of the fittest. It's just that the fittest here are not necessarily the brutes. It's individuals who use their smarts. So they have to get physical sometimes, but that's not all they do. I think we really underestimate animals on that front. Mm. I don't mean this rudely to the researchers because I'm a big fan of people doing research and not necessarily knowing the outcome, because if we knew what we didn't know, we wouldn't have to research, would we? But exactly, I don't find it sort of startling that birds, when they find themselves in the vicinity of a really strong bird, their heartbeat goes up. I mean, why wouldn't an animal get a bit apprehensive in the presence of another animal much more powerful than it? So I don't know why we needed to do research to figure that out. Right. So I think in this case, the reason we needed to do it was they're not using something like how big the other penguin is. This is really a much more kind of sophisticated assessment. What they're doing is they're either watching or they're listening in on other fights And they're using Mm -hmm. that information to determine who is potentially dangerous as an opponent. That means even if a smaller individual, an individual that you just looked at and wouldn't necessarily think is a particularly dangerous opponent, if in fact you get this information by spying, you act on it. I would say that that's a kind of cognitive sophistication that a lot of people don't think that animals can do that sort of thing. No, a lot of people think that humans are the only ones that are smart, but that just shows how dumb they are. Now, look, let's move on to chimpanzees because they're pretty cunning, aren't they? They pay attention to who the aggressor is around them, who's more powerful than them, but they also keep a pretty good idea of who's looking at them. So it's not only I'm looking at you to work out if you're tough or not, but I'm watching my back to see who's watching me. That's right. That's right. They are paying attention to the audience. And in effect, what they are doing is putting on a show that they hope will increase their power in their group. So basically, what you'll often see is that, you know, you have a struggle between two chimpanzees. You know, these are big animals. They can hurt each other. And and sometimes they do. And if an individual is losing 
they pay attention to who's in the audience. Mm -hmm. And they do that by giving off distressed calls when they are losing. So if an individual is losing, they will temper the distress call they give depending on who's watching. If there's an individual who's watching that has the potential to break up a fight that they're in and they're losing, they will give off really loud distress calls. If they're losing a fight in the same way, but no one in the audience is capable of breaking up that fight and helping them in essence, they give off a much more muted distress call. They're putting on a show because they want someone to come in, break up the fight that they're losing. Strong. And only the strongest dominant individuals in the troop can do that. And so when those individuals are in the audience, the loser is really putting on a show to try and draw them in and break up the fight. Yeah, sure. I'm being smart enough not to waste energy with really high-pitched screaming if there isn't someone there who can, you know, come in and help. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and they're not, they're not the only ones. I mean, ravens do something very similar. In fact, in many ways, they are perhaps even a bit more nuanced than the chimpanzees. So what ravens do is, again, if they're fighting, they too give off kind of signals to the audience that's watching them. And if you're in a fight and a raven, what you care about as the audience members is not like the chimpanzees having somebody who's dominant. What you care about is whether or not your friends, individuals that you interact friendly with, or your mm -hmm. relatives are in the audience. If they are in the audience, you get very loud signals to basically draw them in to help you. It's even more amazing than this though, because if the audience is made up of the friends and family of the bird that you're fighting, you basically yeah. make no noise because you don't want to draw attention and get those birds to come in because they're going to make it worse for you. Yeah, they're really smart. I mean, there's a video, I think everyone's seen it on YouTube of, I think it's crows in big city, maybe New York, and they go and get whatever seed they need crushed. Right. And they sit right. on the traffic lights, drop the seeds down, wait until the cars go over and crush them, and when the lights go red again, pop down and pick up the seed that they want. Now, what we've established today, Lee, well, you've established for a long time, but what we've shared with our audience is that this survival of the fittest stuff is just rubbish. It's survival of the smartest as well, and animals are very complex and very smart. Thanks for joining us today on CounterPoint. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Stinging nettles. Ouch. Has anyone ever said to you, you need to grasp the nettle? When they say that, they're meaning to grab the stinging nettle, you know, get on with it and deal with it. Now, stinging nettles have a bad name, bad reputation because they can sting. But there's a history there, and it tells us that there might, might be a future in this. To talk about that, we're going to talk with Richard Fisher. He's a senior journalist at BBC Future, and he joins us now from London. Richard Fisher, welcome back to CounterPoint. Hello. It's good to be here again. Richard, what's the story about scarecrows disappearing from Germany after World War I, disappearing from the German fields? Well, so in around 1916, 1917, the German state was facing a shortage of lots of things. So the British Navy had introduced a blockade of European ports, and that meant that Germany was facing difficulties with getting raw materials for many of the goods, in particular, cotton. And that caused a problem for clothing. So what was happening in that period was that cotton was becoming very valuable and you couldn't afford to have a scarecrow in a field dressed up in a blazer and a suit and trousers. So people were kind of taking the clothing off the scarecrows in order to kind of recycle it. And a lot of other recycling was happening too. So, you know, people were kind of asked to kind of hand in their clothing, to have dresses of a certain length, even maps, which were printed on fabric, which were on the wall, were taken down and used for recycling at the time. So yeah, it was all about kind of making the best use of what was available. Sure. Now, to make up for this shortage, there was a researcher named Gottfried Richter in Vienna, and he had 
a quite extraordinary suggestion for how to get more cloth. What was that? So amid all these shortages of basic goods, Gottfried Richter came up with an idea to solve the cotton shortage. He'd been working on it for 15 years. He thought it was a great idea. Let's instead use stinging nettles. These plants were widely available, could be grown next to the Danube. They were cheap to kind of process and grow. They seemed like a good idea. You know, it was possible. Mm. He knew from many centuries of using the plant to take the stems and weave them into a thread, which could be used to make clothing. The nettles apparently have these tiny hairs that are called trichomes, and they've got nasty stuff in them, and that's what hurts us. But once it's dried or cooked, they're, you know, cactus, they're finished, and you can use it sensibly. So how far back have we got stories of people using this fibre for something? It goes back thousands of years, actually, because I think our ancestors noticed that the nettle was useful for lots of different things. And you can see stories of nettles in mythology and old stories dating back. But for example, in Norse mythology, there's a story where Loki is escaping from Thor and the other gods and decides to kind of spin a net out of nettle yarn in order to catch some salmon because he wants to see if it's possible to disguise himself as a salmon in the water. And if he did, would anyone be able to catch him? And so he uses nettle to make the net. And so that's a kind of very old story. The stories of nettles haven't yet appeared in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, unfortunately, but like hopefully they will do soon at some point. Never know with well, all that, the that, That's when kids will grow up thinking that nettles can be useful and then they might turn their minds to it when they become yeah. bright little sparks. Well, we do know this, don't we, that if we look back, not just into legend, but you know, into people really using this stuff, it was used. It's been discarded, presumably because people found things easier and cheaper to use. But it's still there. It's still a resource. It's apparently great to grow in soils that have been over-fertilised. It's got a whole lot of uses. And if we are to look to the future, we often have to look to the past, don't we? That's true. I think, you know, there's something to the fact that past generations saw the nettle as a useful plant and saw its myriad uses. I mean, my own main encounter with nettles is kind of walking into one as a child and getting kind of lots of stings and then coming to mm. kind of quite dislike the plant. So researching this story, I kind of learned there are so many uses for this plant, from food, nutrition, to clothing, to farming. And I think that it deserves a better reputation than it has. Richard Fisher, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, even if it is about nasty things like stinging nettles. Thanks for joining us on CounterPoint. Thank you. That's the program for this week. Thanks for joining and I hope you join again next week. To Arthur, who wrote in with a suggestion about looking at Trump's wall stopping the free flow of animals, which of course can mess up ecosystems. We're interested in that, but you might remember we did one on underpasses to allow animals to move, and we have done them in the past. We'll have a look and see if we can do another one, but you're right, Arthur, it's a good topic. Animals being able to move where they need to move. And if you want to follow Arthur's example and send us something, just go to the ABC site, go to RN, follow the prompts to Counterpoint and tell us what you want to tell us. Until next week, this is Amanda Vanstone saying see you later. been listening to an abc podcast discover more great abc podcasts live radio and exclusives on the abc listen app